Let's open our Bibles into Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue our study of this very fascinating chapter, and in particular, verses 3 through 14, this one long sentence. Ephesians chapter 1, tonight we'll consider just verses 4 through 6. Just verses 4 through 6. Praise to the Father for who He is and what He has done. Biblically, biblically, praise is an honest acknowledgement of who God is and what He's done. Who God is and what He's done. Sometimes we, in our culture today, we've kind of got this idea that praise is a particular verbiage, or praise is a type of musical worship, perhaps, or praise is something that we do with our hands, either waving them in the air, or praise perhaps might be a body posture of prostration. And that's not it at all. Praise is an honest acknowledgement of who God is and what God has done for each and every one of us. And that's what's going on in this very long sentence. It originates in the understanding of God as both creator and redeemer. If you want to boil it all down to two things, when we praise God, we're recognizing that he is the creator of all, including us, and he's also the redeemer of those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, that makes him worthy of praise. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign Lord who brought the world into existence. He acted through the agency of his son, both to create and to provide a rescue once man had fallen into disobedience and rebellion. So the Father is worthy of praise. The Son is worthy of praise. And God the Father acts through the agency of the Holy Spirit to provide for spiritual nourishment and refreshment for those who have received the free gift of salvation. So each of the, each of the members of the Trinity is worthy to be praised. And we'll see that happening in this sentence that makes up verses 3 through 14. The keys... To praise and worship are not the waving of hands, although that may be. That may be how it's expressed. But that doesn't make it praise and worship. The keys to praise and worship are an appreciation of grace and an understanding of the price paid for our salvation by Jesus Christ. For we were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot and without blemish. When we finally, one day, When it dawns on us, and I hope that day comes sooner rather than later, when it dawns on us the price God had to pay to save our sorry tales, then we'll really praise Him. And we'll praise Him with our voices, but as we'll see tonight in just a few moments, we're going to praise Him with our lives and the way that we live moment by moment. So yes, praise can be certain certain physical postures and certain physical acts, but it's so much more than that. That's just a tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. The keys to praise and worship are an appreciation of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited favor, all that God is free to do for us on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Have you ever noticed that those Christians who really understand and appreciate grace seem to be the more mature among us? One of the people in the Old Testament that is probably one of the most appreciated and also the most maligned was King David of Israel. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I I named my youngest son after David. I had a psychologist come to the office one time that had a national radio show, and she, she hated David. She said, I despise David. We had an interesting conversation. I said, well, I named my son after him. I don't despise David. Yes, David failed, and he failed terribly. 
But the text still tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. Have you ever wondered why? It wasn't because he was perfect. And it wasn't because he continued to sin willfully and wantonly after it was, his sin was exposed. It's because David knew who he was in light of who God was. That's what it is. David recognized his own sinfulness, and he appreciated grace probably as much as anyone who's ever lived. You could say the same thing about Moses. You could say the same thing about Elijah. So it's hard to make lists, isn't it? You know, this was the greatest. These are the five greatest people of the Old Testament. I don't know that, but I'll tell you what, David's got to be up there somewhere because very, a very few people that have said he's a man after God's own heart, only one in writing. So David understood grace. The more you understand grace, the more mature you're going to be in your Christian walk. There was a man that I've, I've had, had described by three different people who knew him. I never met this man. But three different people knew, who knew this man personally described him as the man who understood grace more than anybody that I've ever met. And he's actually a man of a past generation. There was a man who founded Dallas Seminary, a man by the name of Lewis Sperry Chafer. Three different people who knew him personally. And now um, two of the three are, are with the Lord in heaven now. But one of them is still living. But all of them, independently of each other, all said that this man understood grace more than anybody that I've ever met. Interesting, interesting, this idea of grace. We need to understand grace, but we also need to understand the price that was paid. See, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Somebody had to pay the price. Grace is free to us. It cost God a lot. And it didn't just cost him the death of some unknown angel in some unknown part of the universe that had no family that nobody would ever miss. When he, when he purchased our salvation in grace, he purchased it with Christ's death. We, not, we don't need to forget that. You know, how much, you know how much that will do for us? When we remember that, we'll realize that in spite of the fact that these people over here look really, really wealthy, these billionaires look like they're rebelling against God and being blessed for it. We'll realize, as the psalmist did in Psalm 73, that we're actually much more wealthy than they are. Because I've got something that's not going to be taken away from me. It's going to last forever. I'm very valuable to God. Now, they would be too. All they had to do is humble themselves. But, but we would realize that, that we really truly are wealthy. When times get tough, we'll realize that the price paid for us was a lot tougher than any, any disease we could ever endure or any phone call from any bill collector that we might ever have to put up with. Grace grace. It's helpful to remember that this sentence that we're studying right now, Ephesians 3 through 14, and yes, I did say the sentence. It's, it's quite a long sentence, isn't it? 202 words in one sentence. Now, we don't have sentences like that in English anymore. If you tried to write a 202 word sentence in any publication, the editor would strike it, strike it, probably send it back to you. So we're not even going to publish this book for any knucklehead that would give us a sentence of 202 words. But it wasn't that unusual back in the ancient world. I remember when I was at University of Houston in the classics department there, studying, studying not only classical history but classical Greek. We would have to read Plato and Sophocles and Thucydides and people like that. And it was very common on a page to have an entire page, a Plato, for example, being taken up by one sentence. So what, what Paul did is very classical here. He had a classical education. And so he wasn't living in a world of nine-second sound bites. He was living in a world where, where people could follow that kind of, of idea. I think probably the reason they could follow it is because there weren't any televisions, there weren't any radio, when people actually had to have a conversation in the evening with other folks. 
And people, uh, thinking was a sport back then, and oration was a sport. Now verse 3, the verse that we studied last week, blessed be the God, or actually we said that probably should be understood, blessed is the God. The word be is in italics there, so we have to, we have to insert the verb, it's more likely a present indicative. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember we said there's two ways that word blessed is used. When, when God is blessed, when we bless God, it's worship. When God blesses us, he's bestowing his favor upon us. Ordinarily in the Bible, not just spiritual favor, but material, it can be material favor as well. So blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not just some spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing we could ever need. He's already done it. He has already blessed us with these blessings in the heavenly places, in Christ. And there's that in Christ phrase that we studied in the very first lesson that we had in Ephesians, a technical term for the idea of positional sanctification, of us being in union with Christ. The baptism of the Spirit takes each one of us at the moment of salvation and places us in Christ. Now, verse 3 is a summary statement of everything else that's going to happen in this paragraph. I told you last time that this paragraph will give the expositor of the exegete headaches. I mean, literal headaches. I mean, it's serious literal headaches because the structure is so very difficult to determine. There are, I quit counting it, over 40 different structures that have been proposed for this long sentence. And so it is, it is a very hotly debated topic, but it appears that it at the very least is, is organized this way. At the very least, it's organized around an exposition of three, the three members of the Trinity. The Father we studied, the, the Father is worthy to be praised. That's verses 4 through 6. That's tonight's section. And next week we'll study the fact that the Son is worthy to be praised. That'll be verses 7 through 12. And finally, the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised. That's verses 13 through 14. One more time. The Father is worthy to be praised in verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, the Father is worthy to be praised. See, I am trying to speak more slowly. It's, it's, a, it's hard for me. But... <laughs> At least I'm repeating. The Father is worthy to be praised in verses 4 through 6. The Son is worthy to be praised, verses 7 through 12. And the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised, verses 13 through 14. That's, that is a basic structure. Now, the structure can get a lot more complicated the more we dig into it. But at the very least, that's a basic structure that pretty much everybody will agree on that much, at least. And so that's the structure that we will, that we will um, embark upon. Now... Just because we say the structure is challenging doesn't mean it doesn't have a structure. And it doesn't mean that Paul is just rand randomly rambling on. Not at all. You remember what, how we illustrated this last week, if you were here? We said Paul is so excited about all the reasons that God is to be praised. He's just like, boom, 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 one after another, one after another, one after another. And we stopped and we did the SMACRIDGES, the LOCKRIDGES rather, very famous sermon, or at least it was his famous sermon with some graphics put to it about that's my king. And in that's my king, he just rattled off one after another after another of, the, of Christ's incredible attributes and his functions. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's just really jacked. He's excited. And so he, he, he seems to get a bit verbose here, but it's verbosity with purpose. The Holy Spirit is behind it. Never forget that. So he's obviously excited as he writes this anthem of praise, but he's not just rambling. The multiplicity of words used to praise God here are absolutely beautiful 
with regard to their outcome. God is worthy to be well spoken of. God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be worshipped. Now, if you don't remember anything else from the first major section, verses 3 through 14, that's what you need to remember. God is worthy. The Father is worthy. The Son is worthy. And the Holy Spirit is worthy. Why Why are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit worthy to be praised? Because of who they are and what they've done. Now that's, I don't want to, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but that's a, that's a fairly simplistic understanding of what's going on in verses 3 through 14. God is worthy to be praised. All three members of the Trinity are worthy to be praised. They're worthy to be well spoken of, worthy to be praised, worthy to be worshipped. Why are they worthy to be praised? Because of who they are and what they've done. Because God is creator and redeemer. Because of the price that was paid for us. Are you starting to get the flow now? And we haven't even gotten to the to the passage specifically. Now, in verse 3, God is worthy to be praised because he has bestowed every spiritual blessing upon believers. And that's the summary statement for the entirety of the paragraph. Okay, God is worthy to be praised because he has bestowed every spiritual blessing upon believers. Now, let's delineate some of those spiritual blessings. Again, remember that sermon from last week where we inserted the video where, where he just went rapid fire one after another. Now we're going to go rapid fire with some of the reasons or some of the things that God has done that makes him worthy to be praised. The first reason, the first reason that God is worthy to be praised is that he elected believers in Jesus Christ for moral purity by foreordaining us to adoption as sons and daughters according to his will. Now let me say that again. The first reason that God is to be praised, the first reason to get more specific with it, is that he elected believers in Jesus Christ. He elected believers in Jesus Christ for moral purity. He didn't just elect and and leave it there. There's a reason that he elected us. The reason he elected us, or there's there's a purpose behind the election. The purpose behind the election is for moral purity. By foreordaining us, by foreordaining us to adoption. Now the text is going to speak about a, a adoption as sons, typically. But it is not a, a sex-specific phrase there. It's sons and daughters. It's not just males that get adopted. We'll talk about adoption in a moment. It's a beautiful doctrine. And he does this according to his will. So one last time, the first reason God is to be praised is that he has elected believers in Jesus Christ for moral purity by foreordaining us to adoption as sons according to his will. So there are three very serious theological concepts that are introduced in verses 4 through 6. And I know these are, these are tough concepts. I acknowledge that before we ever get to them. But these are the three very serious theological concepts that are introduced in verses 4 through 6. Election, foreordination, or predestination, if you prefer. Election, foreordination, and adoption. Those are heavy, aren't they? Very, very heavy concepts. Let's read the verses. I want to begin again with verse 3 because it flows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now remember, this is still talking about the Father. And we know that from verse 3. Just as he, this is the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. The first, of course, of these issues is the doctrine of election. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is perhaps, perhaps, the most controversial of all the doctrines in the Bible. And often, more is said about it in our discussions than the text actually says. Often in our discussion of election, we see, if you read the commentaries on Ephesians, for example, they see the word chose, or some translations may say he elected us. They see the word here. And then the next 40 pages are speaking about the doctrine of election. I want you to notice something here. This passage just mentions it. It doesn't explain it. And so we need to be sensitive to that as we do our exposition of it. This passage, listen carefully, this passage makes no attempt to explain election. It simply states it as a fact. No attempt to explain it. Now, other passages may. I'm not saying that. But this passage simply mentions it, states it as a fact. The idea is that God chose us in him. Again, here's that phrase, isn't it? I told you it was going to come up over and over again, this phrase, in him, in Christ. Very important phrase. He chose us in him, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. When did he do it? Before the creation of the world. Before anything was ever created, we were in his mind. Now, that makes sense if we think about the omniscience of God. Think about it for just a minute. If I was to tell you, if I should tell you, you've never learned anything in your life, you probably would take that as an insult because it would be an insulting statement, wouldn't it? It would be. But if we were to say of God, God has never learned anything. You realize that would be a statement of truth? Because all knowledge with God is simultaneous. Now, this is where it's, now the brain, I'm told, has no pain fibers per se. There are pain fibers all around it, but the brain tissue itself, I'm told, has no pain fibers. But this is where it hurts the brain, whether there's pain, brain fibers there or not. To try to understand some of God's infinite perfections, try to understand an omniscient God, someone who knows everything but never learned anything and always knew all that he knows. Blows me away. I can't really get my mind around that because I've got a finite mind and that's an infinite category. But I will tell you this, that's the way it is. God never learned anything. All that he knows, he has always known. So it would make sense that whether he did it in time, after he created, or before he created, it's irrelevant to him. C.S. Lewis calls it the eternal now. When he talks about our decision to trust Christ, he says we make that decision in the eternal now. Interesting, in his view, we also make the decision to reject Christ in the eternal now. That's why in Lewis's view, even when people get to hell, they still will be rebellious against God. That's the whole subject of the great, his uh, interesting work, The Great Divorce. But he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, sometimes I talk to people and they say, I don't believe in the doctrine of election. Well, don't be silly. Don't be silly. The doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's right here. He elected us before the foundation of the world. What you might want to say is, I don't believe in the Augustinian view of election. I don't believe in the 
Calvinistic view of election. I don't believe in Arminius' view of election. Something like that. But you don't want to say, I don't believe in election. It's here. And it's it's not bad. It's a a doctrine that causes a lot of us to kind of go into convulsions because we don't like the the thinking that it's got to do to try to get our mind around it. And it's been argued about for almost 500 years now. Actually, a lot more than that if you go back to Augustine. But even though it's a difficult doctrine, it is a doctrine, but it's not a doctrine to be scared of. It's a doctrine for which we should praise God. That's Paul's point. It's not The point is here is not to explain how he elected us. And again, he may do that in some other passages. He may actually not, too. But the emphasis here is not on explanation, but it's on adoration. Not on explanation, but on, on adoration. Aside from all the debate... I mean, all the debate. In my library, I've got a dozen or two books just on Calvinism and the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. It's a, it's a fascinating debate. But aside from all that debate as to whether God's choice was arbitrary and unconditional, as per Augustinianism and Calvinism, or based upon some foreseen faith, as per Arminianism, or something in between, that's really not the point here. And if we stick with the point, what the point, the point that is being made, this is going to be a much more beautiful passage. Those may be, again, those may be argued somewhere else. They're not being argued here. This is one place, I believe, this is one passage, Ephesians 1, 5, where the theological debate, 1, 4 and 5, where the theological debate has historically missed the point. They have missed the point of this passage. Now, not all, of course. But the theological debate has missed the passage. Now, sometimes the exegetical debate has not. When you focus here on this passage, the, 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 the issue is, not was Calvin right or was, uh, 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 was uh, Augustine right or whether Arminius was right, but the point is God should be praised. The, the point is not explanation here, it's adoration. He elected us before the foundation of the world. Praise God. You see what's happening here? No matter what your view of election is, Praise God it happened. That's the point here. Adoration, not so much explanation. So, regardless of how God did it, and isn't that the debate? How did God elect? Upon what basis did he elect? Was there any basis? Was it arbitrary? Was it capricious? Aside from all that, regardless of how he did it, we praise him because he did it. Because he set us apart in eternity past before we were ever born. Isn't it comforting when times get tough to realize that God thought about you before you ever took your first breath? In fact, way past that, before anybody ever took their first breath, before Adam ever took his first breath, and if I understand this passage right, before any angel was ever created, even way back before anything was created, he thought about you. And his brain is big enough, if I could use that word, his mind is big enough that he could do that. Before you ever took a breath, he knew every thought that you would ever have. Every single thought. He knew every place you'd ever go. He knew every rock that you would ever trip over. He knew every difficulty that you ever faced, every heartbreak that you would ever have to endure. And he made provision for every bit of it. Why do we doubt him? Why do we walk around as if he doesn't have things under control? And we wring our hands because, you know what, I know, I know we've got a big God. I know he loves us, but, you know, I've, I've got this car payment. I'm having a lot of trouble making this car payment. I don't know if he can handle that car payment. You know how insulting that is to God? When we worry, 
There's a reason why that passage is there. Stop worrying about anything. But in everything, by means of prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in that passage, which comes from Philippians, by the way, did you ever hear anything in there about God taking away the problem? I didn't. All I heard there was that we were to turn the problem over to God, and then the act of turning the problem over to an omnipotent, omniscient God that loves us very much is enough to calm my heart if I really do it. Isn't that wonderful? Well, he knew about us, he thought about us, and he made provision for us before we were ever born. Now, please, I need to say this. Please don't misunderstand. I do believe, I do believe that the historical debate over election is an important one. I'm not trying to minimize that. I've spent probably way much more time on that than I should have myself. It speaks, the reason it's important is it speaks to the very character of God. Your view of election will say a lot about your view of God. Does he desire salvation for all, or does he desire salvation for just a chosen few? Does he really love, I mean, does he really love all, or does he really love only those who are the elect? Did Christ die to make salvation possible for all, or only for a certain few? Are some people born with absolutely no shot at all? Well, you see, the way you answer those questions will say a lot about how you feel about God. Now, I believe, this is my view, and I'm not going to belabor it because I just got through saying that's not the point of the passage, but I can't help myself. <laughs> I believe the best scripture, and I've got enough time to do it. We, we ended the prayer time early tonight. I believe the best scriptural case, the best scriptural case, can be made for the fact or facts that God desires the salvation of all. It's hard to get around 1 Timothy 2.4. That's what it says. God who desires all men to be saved. That's a hard passage to get around. He desires the salvation of all. God loves the world, the whole world, for God so loved the world. Now, some people try to say that world is the world of the elect. Even strong Calvinists say that's going a little too far with the text. God so loved the world. Christ died to make salvation possible for all, for everybody. He didn't, he didn't die to secure the salvation of all. That's not a biblical concept. Some people do reject him. Some people do go to hell. But he died to make salvation possible for all. That's a passage like 1 John 2. 2. Now, there are many others. We've studied unlimited atonement many, many times. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction for our sins, but not ours, not just ours, John says, but for the sins of the whole world. And finally, all people have a shot at salvation. All Whosoever believeth in him shall never perish. So at least those things I think I can say dogmatically. And many Calvinists and Arminians both would agree with at least those basics. Not all, but many. In my view, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist by divine decree. God's the one that decided that. I believe that God sovereignly chose to make his creatures choose. He gave, he gave them the ability to make free will moral choices, and they made those free will moral choices. I think that's biblically defensively, defensible as well. In my view, and this is where it's going to get a little bit more personal, but I think Augustine went too far. And I think Calvin followed Augustine too closely. 
That's just uh, my view. Just my opinion. If you, dig- if you disagree, no problem. Just make sure whatever view you take in the debate maintains the integrity, the love, and the fairness of God. And please, don't redefine those terms in such a way that they're totally unrecognizable to make your case. In other words, uh, you read, well, that's fair. That's what you think is fair. But that's not necessarily what God thinks is fair. Listen, where would you get the idea of fairness from? You got it from God. That's the whole idea of the moral argument for the existence of God. So, no, you don't have to redefine fairness in such a way that it looks nothing like what our understanding of fairness is. But here's the mystery, and I'll leave it at this. Here's the mystery. The Bible never says upon what basis we were elected. Never says it. Never does. But the scriptures never portray, not even once, the scriptures never portray God as arbitrary or acting randomly. God doesn't do any, meeny, miny, mo. Kids do that. But God doesn't do it. He does things with a purpose. So granted, I mean, granted, if you're in a seminary class in soteriology, on one of the first few classes, this will come out. We need to be careful because God never said in his word exactly what he what caused him in his omniscience to say that person's elect and this one's not? But I can assure you this, it wasn't random. It wasn't random because God doesn't act randomly. It wasn't arbitrary because he doesn't act arbitrarily. And it wasn't capricious because he doesn't act in a capricious way. It was purposeful. Whatever it was, now I have my opinion because it seems to me there's only one thing that he would have foreseen in people. Not, not that it had no merit, but, but we do know that this is something that happened in eternity past. And we miss the beauty of the passage when we wander off Paul's intended message here. The intended message, and I want to bring us back to this now. The intended message, God is to be praised because he elected us in eternity past. Let's don't get so wrapped up in the arguments over the hows of elections, or the, whether it's conditional or unconditional, that we lose the beauty of this. We worship a God that's worthy to be praised. But that's not all. The purpose of our election was that we might be morally pure, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we see the timing. That, this is purpose or result, probably purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So the purpose of our election is that we might be morally pure. God did not elect us so that we could live as though we know nothing of him. Now, some believers do. But he didn't elect us for that purpose. Peter already did that, didn't he? I don't know that man. Three times. Last time with a curse. I don't know that man. Now, you might not have ever uttered those words. I don't know that I have ever uttered those words, at least in, in that way. But too often... We've all lived the utterance of those words. We act as if we don't know him. We act as if we're not adopted into his family. We act that way, and that surely grieves the Holy Spirit when we do. So he elected us for a purpose, that we might be holy and blameless before him. Now, that's in time and in eternity. So there's a certain behavior that's expected. That's not a shock here. Paul mentions that in every single one of his letters. That we're to behave in a manner that's worthy of our salvation, in a manner worthy of our calling. So salvation carries with it certain responsibilities. 
Now here's, here's something we need to keep in mind, because it's a false conclusion to say, well, therefore, if you don't fulfill the responsibilities, then you were never saved in the first place. That doesn't follow. Some people fail. Some people don't live a life like they're supposed to. Peter denied our Lord. But it didn't mean he wasn't saved. Some people, I have a, had a friend in the seminary who just insisted Peter was not saved until after the crucifixion. That just doesn't stand the biblical test. It's not, it's not biblical, uh, biblically defensible. So even though we act as though we don't know him, we still are his child, and we have a responsibility to act consistently with who we are in Christ. God's choice of us then is further described as we get into verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's difficult. You might have noticed in your Bibles, if you have a New International Version or New American Standard, the words in love are actually found after a period at the end of verse 4. Do you see that in, in most of your Bibles? Some of you will, some of you won't. But it's, it's always been difficult for translators to, to figure out, do the words in love belong with verse 4, or do they belong in verse 5? Now, what New American Standard did was very interesting. They put a period after the word him. Now, we know already that there's no period here. There, there are no punctuation marks at all in the Greek text. But remember, this is one long sentence. The only reason they put a period there so that we can take a breath and not go crazy trying to figure out what the, the structure of the sentence. So they're trying to help us here a little bit. But the phrase in love has been very problematic. It's difficult to determine with certainty what the, with what the phrase in love should be taken. Fine scholars, and I do mean this, I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, fine scholars line up with differing opinions here. Some take it as signifying God's motivation in electing us. So it was by means of his love that he elected us. So those people would take it with verse 4, with the previous phrase. Some taking it describing how holiness works. They, they too would take it verse, with verse 4, so that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. Uh, understanding that the expression of love is one of the greatest expressions of holiness and blamelessness. You see how that could be, certainly be understood that way. And still others take it to modify the concept of predestination. That's what the New American Standard does, although they, they kind of punt as much as they can. They leave it in verse 4, but they put a period in and act as though verse 4 flows into verse 5 in love. And they take it as uh, to modify the concept of predestination, meaning that the motivating factor in our predestination is love. Now, taking the middle one out for a moment, the first and the third sound very similar. It's just been where you put it. Is the motivating factor in our election love? Sure looks like it. Is the motivating factor in our predestination love? Sure make a case for that. It, it, probably, it probably doesn't matter which way you take it. It's still going to be true, and that's the genius of Paul and how he writes this letter. So don't make too much of the way that it's punctuated in your English text. The reason it's that way is that it's, it's a very difficult uh, decision to make. And again, fine scholars take all three of those views. Uh, I personally take the, the latter view, that God's motivation for our predestination is love. I think my own personal opinion that fits it grammatically better, but others certainly disagree. But the bottom line, it doesn't matter, because predestination is further explaining the term election. So either way, it's, 
Love was the motivating factor. And should that shock you? For God so loved the world. That's where, that's where it all comes back to, doesn't it? You know, another way to put it is, God loved the world like this. You want to know how God loved the world? This is how he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So is it any shock to us that when we think about to the mind of God in eternity past, this omniscient mind of God, this eternal now, that one of the, motiva- the motivating factor in our election would have been love? You see why I said it says a lot about what you think about God, your view of election? You know, who, who, who's, who did he love? So, you know, we've, we've got there, there's, it's, the, the problem is a multifaceted, a very difficult one. God the Father predestined us to a very special relationship. A very special relationship. And here this relationship is called adoption. It's called adoption. We're part of a family. We're part of a community. Now, the whole idea of community in the last few months has been so uh, overused. It's almost become a nauseating phrase. But, but the reality is Christian, Christians are brought into a community. But even more than that, you see, Christianity is a personal relationship. It's, it's not just a theoretical one. It's not a cold, sterile one. It's a personal one. And this is, this is one of those things that in the middle of the night also should make us feel very comfortable. God predestined us. He set us aside beforehand. He foreordained us for adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, the process, this is this is huge theological idea, and I hate it that we're covering it right here at the end when everybody's kind of tired. But give me, a, give me another five or six minutes, and this will be well worth it, I promise you. The process of becoming sons of God or, or daughters. Remember, it's a, it's a gender-neutral kind of idea. This whole process is called adoption. Now, the term adoption is found only in Paul. He's the only one that uses it in the New Testament. It is an Old Testament idea as well. Remember, Israel was adopted as a nation. The whole nation, Israel, was adopted. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4 Paul places that, the adoption of the nation Israel, very high on the list of Israel's blessings. So it's very important. But while they're adopted as a nation, now granted a nation made up of individuals, but as a whole nation, this text is talking about we're adopted individually. Now we're adopted, the body of Christ it is a, it is a corporate community as well, but, but we're adopted individually. Paul uses this idea in Romans 8.15, 8.23, 9.4, speaking of Israel, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. In Romans 8, 15, Romans 8, 23, Romans 9, 4, speaking about Israel. But then in Galatians 4, 5, and here in our passage, Ephesians 1, 5. He's the only one that, that uses this terminology. Adoption's a beautiful thing. Now, now we see adoption in the human realm. Uh, it's been a few years now. But uh, I'll never forget uh, attending, being invited to and attending the adoption service for a little boy that goes to our church now. And i got to tell you, when, when I went to that, I really was unprepared totally emotionally. I thought, well, this would be kind of a cool thing to do. It would be kind of neat. Uh, but when, when I got there and actually watched the ceremony 
and, and knew the parents well and knew how, how much, I guess, tension, you would say, had been in their lives for weeks and weeks and months. They never tried to show it, but there was that, that tension because they didn't know to the last second when that judge said, you are now part of this family. I didn't know how emotional that would be. But I'll tell you what, everybody there broke down, didn't they? It was just, a, it was just an unbelievably emotional moment as they were now, this little boy was now pronounced to be part of this family. And nothing was going to take him out of that family. He, he was now adopted into that family. And I've got to tell you, that's only a fraction of what it is when we're adopted into God's family. As wonderful as that is from a human perspective, we have been adopted. God predestined us. This all happened in the eternity past, too. Now, the... the, the uh, the purpose was in eternity past. The adoption most likely took place when we were actually saved. But, but it would be like filling out all the paperwork here on earth and having the judge finally say, you're in. But with us, it's a sure thing. And we're part of God's family. We're his child now. And we're not just a child, but we're, we're a, a child with special privilege. That's the biblical concept of adoption. You're not just one of many. You're a very special one. Now, there are many people that have been adopted, but God's big enough to love you personally in a way that ought to blow you away. He loves you. You are his child. Now, closely linked with this act is the work of the Holy Spirit, who, as the spirit of adoption, permits believers to invoke God under the somewhat nursery title, if you will, of Abba, Father. Now, sometimes we make too much of this, but we ought not to make too little of it either. He is our Father in a very tender way. I don't want you to ever look at God in an impersonal way again. This is not an impersonal, detached, unemotional relationship you have with your dad. Here's the problem. Unfortunately, many people in Christianity, and maybe it was this way with you, and if it is, I, I truly grieve for you. I really do. Many of you didn't have that great a relationship with your dad. Some dads are detached. Some dads are unemotional. Some dads weren't there at all. And that's, that's too bad. Because then we, we start to think that that must be the way we should have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's not true at all. Your human father may have been, have been wonderful, and he may have disappointed you. I was blessed with a wonderful human father. Great example of the Heavenly Father. really cared for me. But some of you weren't, and I understand that. But don't superimpose that on your view of God. God's your Abba. He's your Father. You can cry out to Him. You can cry out to His tender, loving heart at any moment of the day or night. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Now, your human father may have said, You know what? No more chances for you. I told you not to do that. I'm not helping you out. Your Heavenly Father's not going to do that. That's great. Now, he may still discipline you, to be sure, but he's never going to disown you. It's kind of silly anyway for a father to tell a son, you are no longer my son. Or for a son to tell a father, you are no longer my father. That's kind of silly because you're always going to be whether you like it or not. Now, you can act as though you're not. I understand that. God's not going to do that to you. Now, he may discipline you. He may skin you alive with a whip, as Hebrews says, every son that he calls. But he loves you. And you can call out to him, Abba, 
father. And I don't mean to oversimplify it. You, you can call him daddy anytime you want. He's that tender. Now, he is the God of the universe. Isn't that an interesting piece of irony? The God of the universe has allowed you, because you're his adopted child, to call him daddy. And to call out upon him, to call to him any time, day or night. The doctrine of adoption. Verse 6, the first of three times this phrase is used, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Actually, you might not have recognized it, but there's that phrase again. In Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him, now in the beloved. To the praise of his glory. This phrase will be used again in verse 12 of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glory, and to the, in verse 14 of the Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory. This is why I said there, there is this structure that we do see, although it's difficult, at least we see this structure, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the point. The ultimate purpose of doing all this is so we can recognize that God's great. He's wonderful. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy to be well spoken of. He's worthy of our praise, the expression of our praise. He's worthy to be worshipped. This election, this whole idea of election, which is further described in our passage as foreordination or predestination. And some people see a, a certain sequence there. Paul certainly saw one in Romans chapter 8. He, he seen, saw a logical sequence in, in, in this. But here it seems to be almost parallel, the idea of election and predestination. The ultimate purpose in all that, election, predestination, adoption as sons, is to the praise of God's glory and grace. That's what this is all about. Don't miss it by getting so wrapped up in the technicalities of the doctrine of election. That's the ultimate purpose for Paul writing this. He is excited here. He's, he's jacked up. He, and he's, he's not going to stop here. We've just had to break it down over a few lessons so we could get the beauty of it. The ultimate purpose is the praise of his glory. The intermediate purpose, there was an intermediate purpose, and that is that we should be holy and blameless before him. So see, the overarching purpose is so that we would praise him. In the meantime, though, one of the ways that we praise him is how we live our lives. It's very difficult to say I'm praising God if I'm just doing it with my mouth and my actions aren't, aren't reflecting the reality of that. The final goal, to which everything else is contributory, is the adoring recognition of God's glory and his grace. So the first reason God is to be praised is that he elected believers in Jesus Christ for moral purity by foreordaining us to adoption as sons and daughters according to his will. It's his will, not mine. It's his will. Heavenly Father, we, we just pause and we say thank you. We say that we praise you. We worship you, Father. We recognize your essential value and your essential worth as creator and as redeemer. Father, there are not words in our language. Perhaps there will be in heaven. But there are not, are not words in our language to properly express our gratitude to you for doing what you have done for us. So we simply say in the English language, thank you, Father. And we'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen.